Hey, it's Jordan here with uh, independent journalist Aaron Maté of Russiagate fame, uh, currently writing for The Nation. He's been with Real News, Democracy Now!, I had to wait my turn because he's such a star now. He was on all all the outlets, other than corporate outlets, that is, uh, to talk about the uh, what he uh, was very prescient about. If we, if we if he's he's humble, but I'll give you a lot of credit because uh, you basically were very meticulous for the last, I guess, over two years at this point, uh, detailing why uh, investigation is fine, but the, the mass speculation. There's no facts to support it. Uh, we're about little over a week now since uh, Barr came out with his synopsis. Um, I wanted to point to a clip, uh, you know, of Rachel Maddow to start. Um, so Rachel Maddow uh, plays this clip. Let, let my audience see it. This is a thing that Mueller's team does in its sleep. It is hard to believe that they'd leave the newly appointed 68-year-old Attorney General William Barr to himself personally pick through the report to try to figure out what mentions in this 400-page report might pertain to open cases. They wouldn't leave that to Barr to do that. Mueller would have done that. Mueller's team would have done that as part of producing anything that they handed over outside their own offices. They've done that with every other document they have produced in the course of this investigation. You'd assume they'd be able to do that for this document, too. But William Barr says, it's taken him a really long time because he's having to do all that himself. So she's basically, you know, talking actively, kind of inventing that Barr is just going rogue on his own without Mueller's support. But her producers, who are still living in reality, put on the bottom of the screen that Barr now being assisted by Mueller. So it's now it's now really devolved into this. I don't know if she's uh, I'm not being I'm being serious. I don't know if she's just had a break and really believes this or if this is just part of the the ruse. But this is now um, Russiagate birther or truther or put your adjective level with Maddow and We'll get to others, too. Look, what Maddow is doing here is following the uh, is is uh, continuing the approach she's had throughout uh, the entire Russiagate era, which is basically just to literally omit the countervailing facts. The difference, though, is that this time it happens to be the bad timing of having her producers put up the facts below her on screen on the Chiron. Uh, so she's claiming that Barr is redacting the report by himself and suggesting that he is covering up the damning truth, while at the same time, unfortunately, the Chiron uh, reads exactly what the news was of that day and what the truth actually is, which is that Mueller is assisting with these redactions, so that what Maddow is saying with her mouth is the exact opposite of the truth, which is at the bottom of her screen. So it's just an unfortunate unfortunate timing for Rachel Maddow that uh, her own producers happen to have included the truth. Uh, in one of her broadcasts. And it, it's no surprise to see uh, the, the cable pundit most most responsible for promoting the Trump-Russia conspiracy theory, uh, now continuing to double down on it uh, with more conspiracy theories. Uh, this one now, the truth is being hid from us, and Barr is redacting out all the damning evidence. And, you know, it's the the question will be, I think, w- whether audiences will finally see through this after being misled for over two years, after being bombarded with this for every single night. Uh, hosts like Maddow covering this issue more than all other issues, you know, on days when the Republicans are passing repeals of Obamacare or a massive upward transfer of wealth from lower income 
uh, uh, classes to the rich through the tax cuts, covering um, people like Matter are covering RussiaGate more and covering, uh, and I shouldn't say covering, really promoting theories that are now turned out to be totally baseless because the person who they promised would validate their conspiracy theory, Robert Mueller, has just come out and rejected it. Right. And to that point, I mean, Trump just totally disregarded a federal judge and granted a permit for the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, There was a Special Olympics thing, which probably would have went through if the media didn't challenge it, uh, Mm -hmm. where Betsy DeVos wanted to cut it. I mean, there's there's so many different things going on. Um, I wanted to ask you because to me, you know, I don't know if I agree with Michael Tracy that like this is the most dangerous thing of all time. I I, I think this is... (laughs) Uh, Did he say he's the most dangerous thing of all time? Yeah, this is very dangerous. You know, he's still tweeting and uh, that this is going to have ramifications that will, you know, take years to unpack. I don't know about that, but I I, I do think as a greater media exercise, I'm kind of to the point now where I watch this. And what's the point of having a public record if you could just pretend that you never mangled the public record? I mean, from David Korn to Rachel Maddow. To, to Morning Joe, I mean, Chris Cuomo, uh, was it? No, it was Jake Tapper. Uh, yesterday uh, on the Sunday show says CNN hasn't gotten anything wrong uh, during this. They, you know, they never, they never, they just reported on the facts. I mean, they pushed the Guardian's now clearly false story about Manafort meeting with Assange. There was the whole debacle, debacle with them, you know, can't read dates where, where they uh, put out their... Um, that well, uh, Trump's campaign got a got a tip tip off about the leaks. I'm sure you could give more examples than I did. W- what are your thoughts? I mean, you, you, I've worked at MSNBC. You've worked uh, for independent outlets, but it just seems like if we get stuff wrong, I mean, we would be basically marched out of this industry, or they would attempt. But if they do, they're going to get promoted. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, having written on this topic for the nation for two years, like. All my pieces were vigorously fact-checked. Uh, there were other people at the nation who were not happy that my stuff was being published because they believed in the conspiracy theory. And uh, they felt, I think, as if you know, c- confronting it, challenging it, was a way of defending Trump. And, of course, I feel the exact opposite. I feel that there can't be a bigger gift to Trump than uh, uh, going all in on a conspiracy theory uh, distracting from his, you know, actual policies, diverting liberal hopes into uh, and and energies into uh, this Russiagate fixation, and then of course seeing it all collapse there right in time for Trump to launch his 2020 campaign, so we can take advantage of it. But that's a side note. But you know, so on our side of things, I can just assure you that, you know, I was vigorously fact-checked, and uh, unfortunately, because that same standard didn't apply to those who were promoting the conspiracy theory. That's why we have this like endless list of mistakes and retracted stories. But you know what? I, it's a mistake even, I think, to confine the issue just to the stories that got retracted or have had to be walked back. Because, you know, so much of how propaganda works is not just in, in saying, in, in, uh, in propagating uh, false stories and, and saying uh, false things. It's also simply in omitting the countervailing facts, you know? So if MSNBC doesn't have on a single Russiagate skeptic for it's you know basically the entire two years of Trump's presidency, they're not doing anything false there, right? So, so you can't say that they're they're they've made a factual mistake, but they're 
committing a brazen act of propaganda, which is you, you simply censor the voices who are presenting the countervailing evidence. Well, no, not yeah. to interrupt you, but there was a Vanity Fair article that basically was quoting people that work at MSNBC anonymously saying there, there just wasn't a marketplace for skepticism. <laughs> there was no, There we go. There wasn't a marketplace for skepticism. So we're supposed to believe in the marketplace of ideas, but in that in that marketplace of ideas, skepticism, I guess, isn't, isn't a part of an acceptable idea in the marketplace. I mean, that that's just amazing. The, re, the, the what that is saying is is that uh, they couldn't tolerate points of view that uh, that countered the narrative that they pushed, which is the literally. I mean, I, like I couldn't define propaganda better myself. You know, so that's MS, that's MSNBC staffers basically acknowledging that they're doing propaganda, which is fine. I mean, they have every right to do that, but at least at least call it for what it is. I mean, you know, and that's what I've certainly called Maddow, and I think that applies not just to her but many others. They're in the sense that they ignore the countervailing evidence, not just that they make false statements, but that they ignore all the countervailing evidence, and they of course ignore the people who are pointing out the countervailing evidence. They're acting as not as journalists but as propagandists. Right. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, I did a video, you know, frankly, I don't really talk about the Young Turks that much, but I think independent outlets, not just the Young Turks, like Sam Cedar just had Michael Tracy on, pretty confrontational, but he was basically like defending Marcy Wheeler's integrity, who I know, I mean, you have had fact-based jousting with her on Twitter for, for, I don't even know how long. And she gave up an FBI source. She's been wrong. She's kind of the lower pro lower profile Maddo uh, as far as Twitter um, so it's just like people are uh, even Sam Cedar who I don't watch I, whatever I'm not gonna knock him uh, I just think he's a little more establishment than I would classify myself but they, they're basically like well what would you have us do they, the president was being investigated and, and I want to make it clear like I think what you and I were trying to say and Matt Taibbi is we're not we're not opposed to an investigation. We're opposed to a, a conclusion being pushed, not based on facts. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Look, on the issue of the investigation, I, I'm very happy that special counsel, I've, I've always been supportive of, of Mueller's investigation because as Glenn Greenwald has said, there were just so many questions around the issue of Trump and Russia and there was so much going either way and there was confusing. So why not have, it, why not have an investigation with basically unlimited powers to get to the bottom of the facts? It, it, it's a good thing. It leads to transparency. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that I think that the, invest, the, the, the initial investigation that Mueller inherited, the initial investigation into Trump and Russia, was justified. I think it was bullshit. Like, if you look at what led the FBI to open up an, an investigation of the Trump campaign's ties to Russia in July 2016, and then later on what led the FBI to open up another investigation, which was a counterintelligence investigation of whether Trump was acting on behalf of Russia— there was no basis for either of those probes. I mean, uh, and and the reason why I think it's important to point that out is because a, I mean, it, it, like like it speaks to how baseless it was for so many people to get their hopes up uh, that this would lead anywhere because the basis for it was so thin and it has to do with this tip that the FBI got about George Papadopoulos, and then the uh, in the opening up of a new counterintelligence investigation of Trump in May 2017 had to do with his firing of Comey and also FBI officials, according to Andrew McCabe, being uh, uncomfortable uh, with Trump's uh, warm views about Vladimir Putin in public. So, 
I mean, those to me are not legitimate grounds for a, a, an investig- a criminal investigation or a counterintelligence investigation. That's separate, though, to me from the issue of whether Mueller should have investigated because just because it was so controversial and, it, you know, I, I thought, why not have an inquiry? And, you know, now we're seeing the result of it that a few of us predicted, which is that Mueller would not find any uh, factual basis for the uh, suspicions that led to the opening of the investigations he he inherited. Um Talking about people like Marcy Wheeler, you know, I've done enough debunking of her and arguing with her. The significance of people like her now is that they were the ones venerated by, not just by, you know, MSNBC and the Washington Post, but even a progressive outlet. So, you know, uh, Marcy Wheeler, who believes strongly in a Trump-Russia conspiracy, made all these predictions that Mueller would indict people for a Trump-Russia conspiracy. Uh, she was the go-to guest on Russiagate for Democracy Now!, which, you know, a show... I come from, I worked there for 10 years. I, to me, it's the most noble show in, in broadcast media in the United States over the last 20 years. It's, it's got such a stellar record. I'm proud to be a part of it, and it does great stuff. But it's an illustration of how, uh, how much Kool-Aid was drunk across the media, not just by MSNBC and CNN, that the flagship progressive show featured as their go-to Russiagate analyst a uh, conspiracy theorist who got this all wrong and excluded uh, voices like mine and others who were pushing back. Uh, and so that's just a reflection of, uh, that, of the fact that this is not just the, the reckoning that needs to apply now, uh, happen now, does not just apply to corporate news. It happens, it also applies to those who brand themselves as being different from corporate news, as, being, as pushing against the dominant narratives. Because in the case of Russiagate, many outlets uh, very much went along with it. Well, I also think... Uh Beyond Russia, because this is not, you know, obviously the the micro version is the Mueller investigation. But beyond it, by allowing people like David Korn, um, obviously, you know, Jake Tapper, uh, I mean, Cenk Uger, uh, a lot of others to kind of just do this like Houdini act. Uh, in Korn's case, well, collusion was never the big thing. It's that it's it's that. Uh, well, what did he say? He's uh, aiding and abetting. Aiding and abetting. Or Jenk said, I was always talking about. Uh, you know, the financial part, even though I was on a panel with him where he wasn't. Uh, doesn't it, it, it kind of has this WMD effect where there's no accountability. So these people aren't more vigorous next time because they fail, they face no consequences. I want to be clear. I'm not, I don't think you could equate like bungling a story like this to hundreds of thousands of Iraqis dying and, and ISIS being created and all that. But the journalistic malpractice, as uh, Matt Taibbi outlined in that great piece, what are your thoughts on it? It just seems that. Why would they be more vigorous next time? And yeah. ne- next time could mean they're going to be pushing stuff about maybe Trump's campaign is working with Russia for for 2020. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think Matt Taibbi's point has been widely uh, misunderstood because he made extremely clear, you know, that uh, he was not comparing the the consequences of uh, Russia Gate to the consequences of the Iraq War because they're incomparable, right? Nobody would compare them that way. But in terms of the scale of the media malpractice, like the, the, the violations of basic tenets of journalism, they're very comparable. And, and you can make an argument that Russiagate is far worse because at least in the case of Iraq and Saddam Hussein, I mean, Saddam is a bad guy. He's a dictator who's killed, you know, tens of thousands of people, mostly, of course, with the U.S. support. But that's a side issue. So at least there was like something there, you know, in terms of like it was easy or it was not implausible that this awful dictator 
could possibly have weapons of mass destruction, um, even though, of course, all the available evidence pointed to, uh, to undermining that theory. The case of Russiagate, it's a conspiracy theory. The, the theory of the case makes no sense. Like, how and when would the Russians and Trump actually have conspired? There's no actual evidence of any kind of contacts between the Russian government and Trump, except for anonymous, uh, anonymous-based stories that either turned out to be unsubstantiated or in the case of a critical one, like the one uh, that came out in the Times in February 2017, rejected, because basically in February 2017, the New York Times reported that senior Trump campaign officials had repeated contacts with senior Russian intelligence officials. And when that came out, everyone was like, whoa, oh my God, this is damning. But it never was confirmed by anyone. And then months later, James Comey, in testimony to Congress, rejected it, said in the main it was not true. But of course, that was not retracted. And that is a part of this like consequence-free <laughs> media climate where you can say all these like, insane things, print them in the most respectful, like a respectable uh, n- newspaper possible, the New York Times, and have, even when it gets rejected by the head of the FBI, uh, still have not have a retraction. And yeah, that's the culture we're seeing now. Uh, we're not seeing, the, the, the problem is, the reason why it's hard for accountability now is because so many people were, uh, uh, because so many people drank the Kool-Aid, right? So it's like, it's going to be hard for democracy now and The Intercept to like demand accountability from MSNBC when they were taking part of it. Like, uh, I'll read you a quote from Betsy Reed, who's someone, you know, I've known for a long time, and who I think is really, uh, really intelligent, has done great work, you know, has done great work at The Intercept, but, you know, this is the head of the, the, this this outlet that brands itself as being adversarial, but with the exception of, of basically Glenn Greenwald, uh, whose blog, The Intercept has no control over, he writes whatever he wants, when it comes to the editorial decisions of The Intercept's editors, they drank the Kool-Aid, they went along with Russia Gates. The well, point, I'll point out, they hired James Risen from the New York Times, and yeah. as far as I could see, I don't, I could be wrong. The only stuff he's written about is why Rye collusion is coming. Uh, James Risen was basically hired because the Intercept was publishing Glenn Greenwald, and uh, Glenn was becoming synonymous with Russiagate skepticism, and so the Intercept was becoming synonymous with Russiagate skepticism, and there were lots of like staffers who were uncomfortable with that. I also uh, would not be surprised if Pierre Omidyar, the owner of The Intercept, was also uncomfortable with that because he is a devout, Russia, de- devout Russiagator hmm. who funds people like Bill Crystal, by the way, which yeah. is a whole other story. But So I would not be surprised if James Risen was brought in for the sole, for the sole purpose of, uh, of peddling Russiagate. And that's exactly what he did in the most you know, embarrassing way. And if anybody's interested, you can see an interview I did with James Risen where after The Intercept published uh, a story based on a leaked NSA document that they got purporting to show that the Russians were trying to hack into U.S. voting systems, I pointed out to James Risen that the document that their story was based on did not show anything of the sort and that they they blew it way out of proportion. And he could not defend uh, that story on on its actual merits and he ended up hanging up the phone on me, which speaks to you of the kind of like mindset that The Intercept uh, enabled, which I just think is a shame because they do it tainted such great work they do. But let me read you what Betsy Reed said. So she said this in a profile of Glenn Greenwald in the New Yorker, um, and uh, the the aim of that profile was to basically malign Glenn and uh, and 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 uh, cast doubt on him because he was doing such great work challenging Russiagate. So the and in this piece, kind of Betsy throws 
not not Glenn necessarily, but other Russiagate skeptics under the bus. She says this. She goes, Betsy Reed, the editor-in-chief of The Intercept, recently told me that, quote, Glenn has a core of incredibly passionate and dedicated followers, unquote. But she added, she is wary, quote, of a kind of pale imitation of Glenn, people who may be partly inspired by him, but don't have the nuance or intelligence he has, unquote. She was referring to Russiagate skeptics on the left, on Twitter and elsewhere, quote, who are so convinced they are being lied to all the time that anything the intelligence community says can't possibly be true, unquote. Reed's view is that, at this point, it's not helpful to the left and to all the candidates and causes we favor to continue to doubt the existence of some kind of relationship between Russia and the Trump campaign. We know some basic contours of it now, thanks to Mueller, but I think we may learn more. And we can't refuse to see what's in front of us, unquote. So there's a few things going on there. First of all, She's saying that no one quite has Glenn Greenwald's nuance or intelligence, okay? Maybe that's true. I don't know. But then she says that uh, what's funny about her talking about nuance is then she goes on to portray all Russiagate skeptics as having the belief that, in her words, uh, we are being lied to all the time and that anything the intelligence community says can't possibly be true, unquote. That, to me, is the most, like, unnuanced uh, generalization about Russiagate skeptics I've ever heard. None of us believe that anything the intelligence community says can't be true. I mean, n- no one except for like a, you know, maybe a fanatical conspiracy theorist believes that. What we believe is that claims should be assessed on their merits and that we shouldn't take intelligence community claims on faith in the absence of evidence, which is something quite different from, from believing, as Betsy Reed says we do, that anything the intelligence community says can't possibly be true. So the irony there of her using the word nuance. And then she says that we know the existence of some kind of relationship between Russia and the Trump campaign, and we can't refuse to see what's in front of us. So, well, actually, we know now, thanks to Mueller, that there was no relationship between Russia and the Trump campaign, at least a relationship in any way that that was the focus of Mueller's inquiry, which is whether or not there was a conspiracy. So, you know, I'm not trying to single anybody out, but I just do think it's important when we talk about the media reckoning that has to happen here. It's not just MS, it's not just MSNBC and CNN. It's even those outlets that paint themselves as being alternatives to MSNBC and CNN. Well, I don't want to get like too meta, but I think we both know, being that uh, you know we're in New York, you in Brooklyn, me in Manhattan, that a lot of the reason I don't know Betsy Reed, but when you look at editors of major outlets, they're in New York and DC, right? Yep. Not a lot of people in, in Detroit or, you know, Idaho. So there's kind of this group think mentality, even among some independent people. Uh, I said when I was at the Young Turks, when I was there, like, ah, sometimes, you know, you could be critical of the D.C. bubble, but you guys might be in an L.A. bubble. So I think that kind of seeps in. I want to pivot because there's really been little attention paid to this. And I think this is why independent media exists to, to bring this out. I don't expect CNN to bring it out. Um, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, there was no indictment of Julian Assange. Uh, you know, I think Maddow was still pushing that there might be something sealed or unsealed, even though that's been told by Barr. And again, I love these people that like, this is the Barr report. He might be lying. Well, then that would be a real scandal if the attorney general is lying about what Mueller found, because he quotes directly from Mueller. But anyway... Assange was not indicted. Uh, as far as we know, with, with Roger Stone's indictment, there's, there's no evidence uh, of a direct communication or Assange tipping off Stone or anyone in the Trump 
uh, it, campaign. So basically, WikiLeaks has been like made the boogeyman. Uh, it's a fact that Russia was WikiLeaks' source, even though no forensic evidence was ever provided of that. Uh, do people? Uh, I don't hear uh, other than people that would normally come to Julian Assange or WikiLeaks defense. I don't see the Atlantic or all these people doing autopsies on Russiagate pointing out there was no indictment of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Not only that, uh, Matt Taibbi reported that Mueller never even reached out to speak with Julian Assange. Yeah, that's true. And in fact, uh, WikiLeaks tried to uh, reach out to the Justice Department to uh, to broker some kinds of talks because Assange uh, was apparently showing some willingness to speak to the FBI uh, in, in exchange for some sort of guarantee for his safety, because of course he faces the very serious threat of extradition to the U.S., um, if I have that part right. But what I do know for sure, yes, is that uh, Mueller never tried to speak to WikiLeaks, which is interesting. Uh, why wouldn't Mueller want to speak to the publisher of the uh, uh, emails whose theft he was investigating? Um, that raises many questions. You know, I don't know. I don't know the answers, but it's uh, well, it's, it's interesting. I'll be I'll be more specific. If you had communications, any communications other than the one we know, where Assange is saying like, "Stop pretending, stop making it seem like we're talking," I, I think he said to Roger Stone like, "Stop portraying, stop or, making false claims of association." Exactly. So if you had anything else, I, I think you'd be derelict not to speak with Julian Assange. Uh, people are wondering, well, why didn't Mueller subpoena Trump to speak? I would equally want to know, why didn't Mueller speak with Julian Assange or WikiLeaks? It could be about anything, really, uh, but obviously potential communications. So I just think it's part of this, uh, like many things, you know, we selectively love people like YouTube, uh, YouTube, um, WikiLeaks when their leaks are good for us. But as part of a conspiracy, you know, they are working with the Russians. And I think that's dangerous because if we're talking about who's right and who's wrong, we've already addressed who's been wrong. As far as I know, WikiLeaks still has a 100 percent authenticity record. Yeah, no, sure. And speaking of like loving people selectively, look at James Comey. I mean, James Comey was played a huge role uh, in, uh, in <laughs> or played a role, at least in Hillary Clinton's loss when he came out days before the uh, election day and said that he was reopening the, the email investigation. He was a villain. And then all of a sudden he, he, brand, he, you know, he got fired by Trump and you know, signed a big book deal and uh, branded himself as a resistance you know, stalwart and he became, he became a hero again. You know? Well, uh, Joy Reid, I mean, right after Barr came out with this, said it has to make use of her cover-up, which I think <laughs> yeah. would imply that Mueller, who you've assaulted as Jesus yeah. of Nazareth, yeah. is part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why we're seeing articles now about how people who put their faith in Mueller are rethinking it. And, you know, people, people got tattoos of Mueller. There was, like, you know, uh, like, there, there was, like, a fan, like, like, romantic fan fiction about Robert Mueller. There was some, like, article somewhere on one of these, like, websites about how, like, a, like someone fantasizing about being romantic with, with Robert Mueller. I mean, like, you know... It just speaks to what a fantasy everybody got caught up in. And, uh, you know, when we engage in fantasy, it's because we want to escape from reality. Because reality is painful. It was painful for many people that Donald Trump was elected. And the only alternative that was presented to us for two years, instead of, say, being an actual organized political um, society where people are organized around the issues that impact their lives and hear about these issues on the, on the media that they consume, 
said it was all about Robert Mueller. And so, you know, what a shocker then that now people are being disillusioned and, uh, and, are, and are upset when Robert Mueller hasn't returned the outcome that everybody was misled into expecting. And I also think there needs to be some culpability. I'm not, I'm not calling for him to resign, but I mean, what the hell, whatever district Adam Schiff uh, represents, what the <laughs> hell have they been paying for? Because, I mean, he released, his first act was basically to say in front of Congress uh, and his committee and just pass off the Steele dossier as if these were proven facts. That's uh, right. He read into the record the Steele dossier. Yeah. Which is insane. It's like, it, it, imagine, uh, it, it'd be like a Republican reading some kind of birther, uh, like, like some, like, like, say like Jerome Corsi did a research document about how, you know, Barack Obama was born in Kenya. It'd be like a Republican reading that into the official record. Maybe they did. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember. But it's, you know, this is Adam Schiff, the head of the, the, the Democratic, uh, ranking Democrat on the Intelligence Committee reading this work of fiction, as we all know it is now, into the congressional record. And you know what Adam Schiff's constituents paid for is basically for him to build a brand, to get on MSNBC and CNN pretty much every single day and to raise people's hopes that there was going to be a smoking gun because he said stuff like, I've seen it, I've seen more than circumstantial evidence of collusion, but I can't tell you what it is yet. But trust me, it's worth investigating. Wink, wink. Well, and, de uh, yeah. Devil's advocate, would you acknowledge uh, that, I mean, there could be things in the final report that are unethical as, as far as the Trump campaign and, and whether they had communications with Russia or not uh, that a candidate shouldn't be doing. Uh, I think that's possible. It just might not be any conspiracy. It might not be any espionage or more coordinated espionage thriller. Well, look, anything is possible, right? I'm not God. It, it could be in the Mueller report that, like, Trump spoke to Martians, yeah. you know, honestly. So anything is possible. But in terms of Schiff saying that he's seen more than circumstantial evidence of collusion, I mean, if there was actual evidence of collusion, presumably Robert Mueller would have uh, alleged it or at least indicted someone over it. So, yeah, it's true. Something might, damning might be in there. To date, though, I can just say, you know, we can only go by what the available facts are, right? So I can't predict the future. But... All the available facts to date tell us that there, no, there, there was no Trump-Russia connection. There was some people who spoke to some figures on the Trump campaign uh, either claiming to have connections to Russia when they didn't, like in the case of this professor, Joseph Massou, who spoke to George Papadopoulos, which sparked the whole initial Trump-Russia investigation. Or there's like the Russian ambassador speaking to Jeff Sessions or to Michael Flynn. But, you know, uh, that's... Like those kind of that kind of conversation between an ambassador and an official, whether you're a senator or you're the incoming national security advisor, those are pretty routine conversations. So, you know, in terms of, you know, evidence of actual collusion, we've seen none yet. And I'm pretty, you know, I can't say this for sure, but I'm confident to predict that we will see no evidence of collusion. And, you know, so people trying to make this as, well, maybe Mueller found something, but not enough to indict or to allege a conspiracy, I don't really buy that. I, his his mandate was not just to find crimes; it was it was to look into any links and or coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia. And we haven't seen him present any of it yet. And I get the feeling that he won't in his report. But of course, you know, th this is all the more reason why we should uh, uh, see the report. I want to ask you, uh, pivoting. You were just in Venezuela doing some great reporting, and I think. 
moving away from the media for a second, we're already seeing the ongoing effects of this reenactment of the Cold War. I mean, I'm seeing between the Wall Street Journal and, and even, quote unquote, liberal outlets, they're framing Venezuela as like, oh, you know, Putin's trying to prop up uh, Maduro and we need to we need to get in there and finish the job or else we're going to hand Putin a win. Uh, you know, obviously not to mention that there's way more countries than Russia that are supporting the Maduro uh, government. Uh, yeah. we, we could dissect, uh, you know, things that they've done wrong. But as you know, being on the ground there, this is basically another, you know, same old, same old us trying to get in there and take the oil and just we'll we'll make up whatever narrative. But it's interesting to me now that it's again being framed as U.S. Russia in terms of Venezuela. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it speaks to the imperial mentality that sort of shapes how we look at the world and ourselves, right? I mean, imperial in, in many ways. First of all, that, yeah, that Venezuela right now is deemed as a, as a U.S.-Russia issue, and really it's a Venezuela issue that the U.S. is brazenly interfering in and, and, tr- and trying to overthrow a government and shape and install leaders that it prefers and, and uh, do away with all the policies the, uh, that the U.S. government doesn't like. I mean, it's a brazen act of interference carried out with a uh, savage uh, attempt to basically suffocate the country through draconian sanctions among the hardest, harshest sanctions that Washington has ever imposed, you know, seriously worsening Venezuela's economic crisis. And, you know, you compare what the U.S. is doing right now to Venezuela to what this two-year fixation has been about in the U.S. Allegedly, Russia stole some emails and, uh, you know, put out some juvenile social media ads and bots on on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And yet, this is what's being deemed in the U.S. an an attack on the country akin to Pearl Harbor and 9-11. So, if what Russia allegedly did to the U.S. is Pearl Harbor and 9-11, then what is... What do we call what the U.S. is doing right now to Venezuela, trying to overthrow its government and subjecting it to, you know, crippling sanctions, possibly even cutting off its its electricity? Venezuela has had a series of blackouts recently, and I mean, I have no proof of it, but I'm not surprised if it turns out that this was a work of U.S.-involved sabotage. So, I mean, the Venezuela issue uh, just highlights again what a complete joke the obsession over Russia fixation is, how imperial we are and how we look at countries around the world, especially those who try to chart an an independent course. And of course, you know, on top of all that, another irony is the fact that it completely undermines the conspiracy theory because we're all supposed to believe that Trump is repeatedly doing Vladimir Putin's bidding. Well, here he is right now trying to overthrow Putin's top ally in Venezuela, you know, which Putin, you know, vocally opposes and is now fighting back. So it's like, you know, Venezuela underscores our own hypocrisy and our own delusion uh, and, and all the important things that, that, that we keep our eye off of in the uh, as we fixate on this dumb conspiracy theory. And just for the record, since you were there and you s- spoke with actual people rather than just, you know, doing stenography, uh, yeah. uh, you know, are, are the people starving on the streets? Uh, do they need rescue helicopters? And are the people you spoke to I mean, obviously, you didn't speak to hundreds of people, but what is their general feeling about the U.S.'s uh, concern for humanitarian aid in Venezuela? 
I did not see a humanitarian crisis. I saw suffering. There's definitely suffering. Uh, but of course, Venezuela is not the only place where there is suffering. And so to claim that it's like uniquely a feature of Venezuela is incredibly disingenuous. I mean, right after I went to Venezuela, I went to L.A. where I saw, you know, uh, just as many people as I saw in Venezuela eating from the garbage and sleeping on the street. So there's something really cynical about the way the uh, the uh, um, uh, conditions in Venezuela have been portrayed. There definitely is an economic crisis. There definitely is a lot of frustration with the government, even amongst people who consider themselves government supporters, amongst those I, I, I spoke to. My takeaway from all that is that this is like a, it's a very polarized country. Uh, and the best thing everyone else can do is leave it alone and leave it to work out its own problems. The U.S. Uh, has been spending tens of millions of dollars every year on the Venezuelan opposition, on top of now trying to overthrow the government, install the opposition, uh, now that it's tens of millions of dollars, you know, just, just didn't cut it. That wasn't enough. So, I mean, Venezuela should be left to sort out its own affairs. There are legitimate grounds to criticize the government there. I mean, I heard many of them. But uh, the idea that it's an economic, uh, it, the idea that it's a humanitarian crisis is just the U.S. trying to, uh, uh, follow a familiar playbook, which is where if you can't overthrow the government by economic coercion or by uh, meddling, you try to basically cripple the country enough so that it, it's it, people are, are so miserable that they kick out the people who you don't like, which was a successful U.S. Um, uh, approach in a country like Nicaragua, which fought off a, a terrorist contra war by the U.S. for 10 years. But finally, after 10 years in 1990, Nicaraguans were, were faced with choice by the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, either vote for our guy or, or our people or continue starving. And they chose not to starve. And so that's what the U.S. is trying to do now in Venezuela. And, uh, you know, for all the talk of a humanitarian crisis, there are also really admirable efforts to deal with the uh, issues under sanctions that prevent people from buying basic supplies. Uh, the government has food programs for people. Nobody wants to be relying on government food rations, but uh, rations. But you know, at the same time, people don't have an alternative because because the country is so limited in terms of what it can do because of the U.S. sanctions. So, um, I think uh, many people there. I heard many people talk about how they don't want to become the next Libya. They don't want U.S. meddling. They don't want U.S. help. They just want to be left alone. You know, when I went to opposition rallies, which is you know mostly higher income people, it's a bit different. I heard people there talk about how they would love to have U.S. intervention, but you know, I also heard people who said they don't want U.S. intervention, but they definitely do want Maduro out. And you know, it's my takeaway again is it's something for the Venezuelans to decide on their own. It's not for anybody else to do for them. And lastly, uh, what does a Russia Gate Slayer do next? Like Disney World? What, what do you? What co what comes next? Because I mean, obviously, the report still needs to come out, but for the most part. I think your work is, is your work done? I don't know. Well, there's a book I want to write on the topic. And I mean, I'm looking forward to definitely moving on and covering other topics more regularly for the last few months. I've all, all I've done is Russiagate. Actually, that's not true. I also did Venezuela. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm looking for even more of a variety. But Russiagate in Venezuela has been a pretty good beat for the last little while. I do think it's not over yet. I, mean, I think a key chapter is over now. But now th those who promoted the conspiracy theory are not letting go. We'll see what happens when the report is released, how much they try to extract some, you know, material out of that to fit their conspiracy theory and how much debunking needs to be done still. 
I suspect it's probably over pretty soon. And uh, but you know, the Russia part of Russia Gate is not over because there's still going to be efforts to paint Russia as this existential threat to like you know paint the the stealing of emails, whether Russia did that or not, uh, and the social media activity as being like you know something dire for us all to stand up to. And uh, you know, all that has served to you know, uh, benefit some narrow interests that I don't think have the interests of the common good at heart, but have to do with basically justifying the expansion of the national security state, justify military spending because tensions with Russia are profitable for certain sectors, uh, you know, justify the smearing of progressives like Jill Stein, who's been you know, repeatedly smeared as a Russian dupe, and, and to silence people, to silence critics of all these groups, of democratic elites, and of of the bipartisan foreign policy establishment. So there'll be plenty more pushback on Russiagate to do. I just think that we're in a new chapter of it. And now, you know, so much of the uh, prevailing uh, buy-in and Kool-Aid drinking was reliant on the fact that Mueller was still investigating. So until Mueller was done, until Mueller had rendered a question, it was, you know, all everything was presumed to be going in the direction of uh, F- Mueller finding a conspiracy. Well, now Mueller is done and he's rejected the conspiracy theory. So like a huge uh, wind at the backs of the conspiracy theorists has been removed. And now I think it's in another direction. So people like me who push back from the start, I think are going to uh, enjoy a bit more freedom now in terms in being able to, you know, get our message out to, to actually look at the actual facts. And that's why, I mean, Jordan, you're an exception because you had me on way before everybody else. But that's why in the past week with, you know, Mueller issuing his verdict, that's why people who never wanted to talk to me before want to hear from me now. And hopefully well, that's a, let's, that let's, yeah. let's be clear. Chris Hayes has not asked you on. Rachel Maddow has not asked you on. CNN has not asked you on. Uh, they haven't even asked on Matt Taibbi, where no disrespect to you. I mean, he's at Rolling Stones, so like that, sure, yeah. he's very credible. So it seems or, like... Or, or Glenn Greenwald, who... Right. Won a- who won a Pulitzer Prize? So it's like you, in terms of journalistic credentials, with both Matt and Glenn, they have no like, they can't. I mean, with me, they can say, yeah, who is he? I mean, fair enough. But like, with Matt and Glenn, you have two people with like, you know, esteemed credentials. You know, also people like Stephen F. Cohen. You know, someone I really admire and and follow uh, very carefully. A fellow, you know, who writes at the Nation magazine. He's a professor emeritus at Princeton and NYU, expert in Russian studies. But try to find him anywhere on MSNBC or CNN. Uh, he was on CNN actually not too long ago, once, debating Max Boot, the, the neocon pundit. And a Professor Cohen humiliated Max Boot. So I don't think we'll be seeing Stephen Cohen back on CNN at least anytime soon, or at least to debate anybody, because that was like a demolition. Well, thanks for taking the time. Until next time, where maybe Matto will you know, break the underground uh, Mueller investigation that just hasn't ended. Uh, yes, that's right. We yes. can only be so lucky. So thanks, Ben. Uh, we'll talk soon. Talk soon. Thanks, Jordan.